Hello and welcome to the Keep Moving Podcast with MIT professor John Donovan. Over a 40-plus year career, Professor Donovan has impacted thousands of organizations and founded 27 companies, six of which went public. He is a sought-after entrepreneur and business advisor throughout the world. We will dig into what makes businesses tick and how to make them more successful. Welcome. Today we're going to talk about relationships and why they're important. Not dating, but in business. We'll talk about dating, too. Uh, but anyway, our previous podcasts, if you haven't had a chance to listen to them, we'd encourage you to go back and do so. We talked about your journey over the years, um, sort of how you've gotten to where you are, uh, your early childhood sort of education and your parents. And we learned about lazy assets. Lazy assets are, can you give me an example, just a high level example of a lazy asset? Uh, yes. If I look for lazy assets in uh in companies as recently as yesterday, a newspaper president of the largest newspaper in Vermont, the Vermont Standard, I was talking to him and he's concerned about his company the newspaper business is not a good business to be in. He's losing uh, money and subscribers and his company is losing value. A lazy asset that he's got is he's got relationships with some 200 organizations that advertise with him. They're trusted. They like him. 200 of those 200 people, they all have websites. A lazy asset is, is there a way to help those people and improve his business as a result? How about, for example, joining all those websites together to form a new website, Shop Vermont? Okay. So what you've done is you sort of looked at that organization and you said, what assets do they have that really aren't doing as much as they could for the organization? And you identified these relationships, which we're going to talk about today, and saying, aggregating them together into a new type of website. Right. Is that fair? That's right. Okay. And, and I never want to pigeonhole too much on lazy assets because it might be a lazy assets, the concerns around websites, but it might be lazy assets on relationships. It might be lazy assets mm -hmm. on technology that a person has. It might be their customers. It might be their data okay. that they have. All, All right. of those could be assets that could be turned into new business opportunities. Right. So we had a good discussion about that in a previous episode. I'd encourage you all to go back and listen to that because a lazy asset is a key asset. To really being successful is to look what you've already done and accomplished and leverage that. We right. also talked about previously disruptions. What are disruptions in business? Just simply the definition. Well, I'm glad you asked that question because a little controversy that I'd like to say, Paul. You have these people that talk about entrepreneurism mm -hmm. and they say disruptions. Clay Christensen and others, they'll talk about technology disruptions. Well, yes, it's obvious we got a disruption because the digital age came along, or the internet came along. Mm -hmm. That performed a disruption. Uh, but there are fundamental disruptions much broader than technology. Uber has disrupted the entire taxi business. Right. They took advantage of a lazy asset. Mm -hmm. All those people that are around there that just have automobiles that... that I can give jobs to an employment to. Right. Wonderful, lazy asset. Right. Now, disruptions. I'll just take today. 
you've got Al Jazeera, a major news organization. Mm-hmm. They're wonderful. They report globally. They've got high-quality people in there. What happened? They put $2 billion into the American operations. They're shutting it down next month. Hmm. Why? Well, it turns out not a technology problem. It turns out the price of oil dropped. The major funders for Al Jazeera are the Mideast countries. I see. They turned around and said, whoops, we don't have the money any longer. So they cut someplace. They cut them out. So a disruption in oil prices means that all of a sudden Al Jazeera in America is going to go out of business. Wow. That's a disruption. You take, how would you like to, I'll give you another one that's occurred this month. How would you like to be a tourist business right now in Brazil with this Zika virus? Mm-hmm. That's a health disruption that came in. Who could have predicted that? Right. You've got a hotel. Everything was going great. I've got the Olympics coming. Mm-hmm. Whoa, this is great. Boom. All of a sudden, Zika virus. And let me tell you, if you're a young woman, are you going to go to Brazil? Right. It's very dangerous. And take the chance of having a baby that might be severely handicapped? Right. I don't think so. Those are disruptions that are broader than just the technology. Now, there's technology disruptions, government disruptions, environmental disruptions. But for an entrepreneur, every disruption is a crisis, but it is also an opportunity. And if you're an entrepreneur for a new company... That presents your chance for starting a new company. If you're an entrepreneur in an existing company, your disruption will be the opportunity for you to go into further greatness. Okay. So I guess to summarize, don't fear disruption. Embrace it. Yeah. And make turn it into an opportunity. That's, that's wonderful. That's okay. exactly right. Okay. Well, let's keep moving. Onto the importance of finding. I find that interesting. Isn't that, isn't that clever? Yeah, that's cute. That was clever. <laughs> I slipped that in there. Keep, moving, moving, keep moving. Keep moving. Podcast. <laughs> um, let's talk about the importance of finding and keeping relationships. So I know that there's a book that you recommend that almost everybody you hire, actually everybody you hire, uh, you recommend they read that. Yes. What book is that? It's Dale Carnegie's book. It's called How to Win Friends and Influence People. Okay. It's a classic in some sense, but it gives some keys to relationships. And relationships, in some sense, are more important than facts when you're dealing with executives. Hmm. If somebody's going to deal with you and change for you, they've got to trust you. They've got to like you. That's the first thing. Many technical people, certainly with an MIT background, jump over that step. What do you mean jump over it? They just ignore they just, it? Or? They ignore it and they start talking about their greatest uh, thing they're doing. Or they turn around and start selling something right away. As a matter of fact, what you might want to do, and I think Dale Carnegie says this, but if he does, doesn't, I'll say it. If you're having a conversation, a sales conversation with somebody, if you counted up the words you say versus the words the customer is saying, you win if the customer said more words than I what see. you said. Okay. Your relationships are going to be more important to establish a relationship with a person that's long-lasting if you're going to be successful in selling, in technology, in in anything you do. So is the relationship, I mean, I guess a relationship, relationship is the word we use to describe the way you talk to people. 
one, a person talks to people and knows them and how they know them. So how, how do you do that? How do you, I mean, I'm a technical person. So, and as you've talked about, I don't know if you've mentioned it here, but you know, what, what does a technical person do? Go ahead and share that about their, their footwear. What a technical person does is I, as I say, we, we train technical people at MIT and culture mm -hmm. to do this. I call it a hole in your sock. Right. What that is, is most technical people will have this wonderful system. And the first thing they do, instead of talking about the wonderful system, they'll talk about what the difficulties are with it. They'll say, the security isn't quite right. And before I start the system, our performance is poor. Or, I'm sorry, my view graphs aren't quite right here. Uh, I didn't have time to finish them. They've got beautiful view graphs. They've got great knowledge in there and everything. Why do they tell all of this mm -hmm. stuff? I call it the phenomenon, a hole in your sock. You're all dressed up perfectly. You've got a nice tie on. You've got a nice suit on. But before I start, excuse me, ladies and gentlemen in the audience, you ought to know I have a hole in my sock in underneath your, my shoe. Yeah, in, in your shoe. You don't yeah. see it, but it's there. Why do you think we're compelled to do that? Because I've had that same reaction myself. It's a cultural thing, and we reinforce it. If you're an engineer, it's not good enough that the bridge works 50% of the time. Mm -hmm. If you're a physician, it's not good enough that your operation is 20% successful or 50% successful. It is, you have to be, it's not good enough if you're an engineer or if you're a doctor to be 20% successful. Okay. You have to be 100% successful. Right. So we train a culture that says, if there's something wrong with it, you've got to tell us now. I see. That bridge has got to work every single time. It can't be 50% of the time trucks go over it, they're going to crash the bridge. Right. So it's a cultural thing that we are so concerned about the perfection. Hmm. For an engineer, I use the expression, perfect is the enemy of good. Mm -hmm. uh, if you're an engineer and you're a physician, it's got to be perfect. Mm-hmm. Now, if you're a Harvard Business School graduate and you want to start a company, 50% of the time you'll be successful. That's okay. If you're Ted Williams and you're hitting yeah. home runs, a 50% is great. Mm -hmm. It's not good enough if you're new. So our culture forces you as technical people to watch out for the things that are wrong. Hmm. It's interesting because the way I've felt about it is I didn't want to say something you know, this is the new, uh, this is the fastest word processor ever written. And then somebody tests it and finds out it wasn't. And then they discredit me. That's right. There's also a courageous sort of thing. Uh, that is, we don't like in a culture to get uh, criticized. In certain cultures, are ca uh, more than others. Mm -hmm. you go to Japan, you commit Harry Carey before you get really criticized. Hmm. However, again, for an entrepreneur, he's going to get criticized all the time. He's going to say, that won't work. You know, we talked this morning about Harry Potter's book. Mm -hmm. They gave, it was given to 30 publishers before it was finally accepted. Right. It turns out you're criticized all the time. A person's got to have passion in them. Passion, passion, passion. And realize the first thing that's going to happen when you present an idea, somebody's going to say no to it. Mm -hmm. And somebody's going to criticize it. Mm-hmm. It's okay if you believe it. Then what you do is you take that advice and then you modify it in some way. But with passion, you have to believe. Interesting. So 
we're now we're talking about this in the context of relationships because it sounds like you know we're peeling an onion back and yes. we've, we've got different layers here so we talked about you know how i you know talk to other people and communicate my ideas and yes. you know yes typically i'm going to say well this might work if this and this and this happen well if in this doesn't happen etc so i get all the hole in the sock thing but now we're talking about you know dale carnegie has some ideas that are actually how to engage with a person yes what what would you take away as the the major things that dale is saying in that book uh well, I would take away two things in the book and then one thing that I've added. Okay. Uh, two things in the book that he says is that what does a person care about most mm -hmm. is themselves. And if you remember that when you're talking to people, what you want to do is let that person talk. You want to draw out and find out what that person cares about the most and then establish that relationship there. Mm -hmm. Now, I translate that into how do I start a conversation? Mm-hmm. If I ask most people at MIT, especially technical people, you have the senior executive, the president of Xerox, chairman, Paul Allaire in front of you, what would you say to them? Mm -hmm. They said, we don't know how to start. You have the president, the chairman of Samsung. What do you say to them? Uh, good morning? Mm -hmm. No. You want to establish a relationship. You want to find out what he cares about the most. Mm -hmm. I suggest that every conversation with an executive starts off asking him, what are your goals? Mm -hmm. Now, many technical people say, well, gee, I don't know. That gets a little personal. I don't know if I can ask him that. Mm -hmm. Let me tell you right now. Every senior executive has an elevator speech on what their goals are. Mm -hmm. You say what their goals are, click. They will turn around and say, my goals is to increase the profits of this company. My goals are to be responsive to shareholders. My goals are to increase the safety of my operation. Sure. They immediately tell you their goals. Then the next question to keep them talking is what do you think is critical to achieving that goal? Okay. And if increasing the safety of my organization, training, processes and procedures, they'll come out and they'll say what's critical. Then you can then blend what you want to hear into that. And then what I always do is I say, someplace in that conversation after now we've talked that way, is I try to say, if it's Christmas, what's your dream, your personal dream? Mm -hmm. And usually out of that, I often get something from the family. Mm -hmm. uh, I want my child to go to a good college. I want my child to, to, uh, to uh, uh, travel. I'd like my child to understand different cultures. Mm -hmm. you, you find out what their personal goal is. And then from there, you've got a relationship. You know, all the nuggets of gold are on the table. And you can pick up any one of them hmm. and go from there. Interesting. So, okay. So I'm supposed to go in and I'm supposed to meet this uh, executive. Yes. And I'm supposed to say, you know, Mr. Uh, President of General Motors, what 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 are your goals? Yeah. Um, and now is that? Am I asking them for their pain points, or am I asking the things they want to solve, or no, I, I'm just asking them let, what their goals? Are. I would let them go from there. Okay. If you try to qualify it too much, then you're being a technical person. You're mm -hmm. trying to get something exact. Right. I don't care what they say, as long as they start saying something, and I can engage with them. So if I get too many qualifiers on it, then they'll have to think about it. I, I want see. to just say, what's your goal? And they come and say it. Then later on the personal side, I say, if it's Christmas, what would you like? Anything is okay for I them see. to come back with. Okay. 
and now I, I've seen you do this and it is amazing uh, to do. How would you, for our listeners, how do they start doing that? Do they just go out and do it? Do they try it with friends? Do they, I mean, you know, it's, it's a, cause it's a different way of behaving. Well, it's interesting. The young people that work for me mm-hmm. and mention specific names, Sahil and Joshua, mm-hmm. I've put them into business development. These people are 21 and 20 years old, respectively. They've turned around in the past week, closed three major deals. Okay. With major companies, mm-hmm. Tingley, uh, Stockpile, and they did it earlier with a company called uh, called uh, D Greetings. Mm-hmm. Now, what they do now is they start off, literally, they talk to the chap, good morning, how are you? Uh, what are your goals in your company? They okay. ask that right off the bat. Mm-hmm. And often they come back, increase the revenues, uh, get more customer stickiness. These happen to be people that have major merchants that have websites that are trying to sell things. Mm-hmm. Stockpile is selling stock. Uh, uh, Tingly is selling experiences around the world. So what is your goals? They get back to increase the revenues. Immediately they say, what's critical of increasing your revenues? Well, we have to get more users. Oh, would you like, then now comes a close. Would you like to turn around and get access to 10 million users? Yeah. I see. What's their answer? Right. Oh, we have 10 million users, visitors coming to our site. Mm-hmm. Oh, would you like to get access to them? Yes. Oh, okay. Let's now talk about a commission deal. I see. It's that quick. They're closing deals now within 20 minutes. They get a deal closed by the merchant signs up Right. by starting that way. Now, it took them a long time to get enough courage, mm-hmm. chutzpah, confidence right. to do that. Right. Because they first of all, they didn't think they were worthy enough to ask that question. But people on the other end love to do that because mm-hmm. that's something they all know. Okay. So now how would you change that? Let's say that they didn't have 10 million users. That they were brand new startup, brand new entrepreneur. They're out there in the field trying to say, talk to CEOs and executives to say, I need you to partner with me or however that's going to happen. How do you, you know, that's that value proposition that you just talked about is a pretty slam dunk. Okay, you got 10 million users. Why wouldn't I come to your site? Uh, but if I don't have that, I'm a, new, I'm a new entrepreneur in a new space or even in a company, I've got this new idea. And I want to make it happen. How do you, what do you say? Okay. First of all, I'm going to give you an overall thing. When you're brand new, brand new. The advice I give you is assets beget assets. What you want to look at is what assets you've got that you can get on top of that. So you need a brand new company. You need an early adopter. You need one person to say yes to you. Okay. Then I can use that and say, I've got all these other people. And you're right. The one I just said is a little more mature, that company. So how do you get that first early adopter? Mm-hmm. You look at your assets. Who are your friends? Who are the people that they know? And is there one person someplace that can be a target customer? Concrete example. When we started Send It Later, we had to get an example merchant. We didn't have any users. We didn't have any customers. We had nothing, no other users. So I looked at the assets, and one of the chaps that was on our, that I knew from Vermont had a brother 
that knew the executives in 1-800-Flowers. Okay. I then got him to introduce me to the president of 1-800-Flowers. And what's the first question I asked him? What are your goals? What are your goals? And he said, well, I'd like to do is to get more customers. I then said, what's critical to do that? He said, well, we've got to find other revenues and other channels to go on. I said, how about if we turn around and as an experiment, we won't charge anything for this, but we'll see. You have to make the barrier to entry almost zero. Mm -hmm. So there's no problem for the other person. Let's try an experiment by which we offer to a limited set of users that we want the ability to turn around and order your flowers and send them in the future. Mm -hmm. We'll see if it works. If it works, great. If it doesn't, we don't. Now, then how do I get the users? All we needed was 20 users. Mm -hmm. Did we have 20 friends that would dial into this site Mm -hmm. and order flowers? Yes. Then we report back to them on that, and then we went from there. So you have to get that first early adopter and make it so the barrier to entry is almost zero. In Cambridge Technology Partners, which grew up to be a company who emerged for $6 billion, our early adopter was Bob Crandall, president of American Airlines, and we noticed what his goals were, what was critical. He told me that his goal was to have more efficiency in his airlines and cut costs. Mm Mm-hmm. Well, what's critical to doing that? He said, our service systems. We're just not ahead of it all the times. We've got to schedule service when planes are landing and planes are taking off. How about joining your service systems with your reservation systems? He said, that would do it. Let's try it free. Mm -hmm. We'll build a pilot first and see how you like it. How does he say no to that? Right. It was his suggestion. It was his idea. He said yes. We built a pilot. He loved it. We then turned around and made a deal that he couldn't refuse. Namely, we did it all at cost because mm-hmm. we wanted to reference our early early adopter. We got that as an early adopter, American Airlines, and the rest is history. We right. did the same thing over and over and over again. Right. Interesting. So how did you, in that specific thing, I, you know, I'm more interested in, in, in some of the details behind that. You made a pilot where did the where are the edges of that pilot so in other words it didn't do everything because you wouldn't have needed to do, build the whole system then right um so you built did you build some of the functionality or did you tie into some of the systems or or was it a demonstration or was it actually again i've got the hole in the sock i'm the engineer was it actually fully working or was it just a proof of concept no in an organization you have to find out who are the kings and who are the serfs okay you have to deal with kings what technical people do is to go in and try to sell a technical solution to the technical people, like mm-hmm. the CIO. Right. If this system really works well, you're threatening who in the organization most? The CIO. Right. You're doing something that he said he couldn't do. Okay. Or why hasn't he done it? Or you're coming in with a different technology that he doesn't know and doesn't feel comfortable with. Why are you selling to him? You want to sell to the king. Who is the king? And you have to identify in the organization who's the king. Mm-hmm. Well, clearly the CEO is the king. That's nice. But the real kings are usually the marketing people, the people that are closest to the customers. You get them, they can drive it. 
So what do you want to do on any pilot? You want to get a marketing person or a business development person sitting down telling you what he wanted. Mm -hmm. In this case, we had a service person come down and say, this is what I would like, Hmm. the information I would like to get. We then piloted just that information, a little dashboard for him so that he saw when the plane was due for service, when it was landing, when it was going to take off, a little dashboard he saw. We did connect in, give some nod to the uh, technical people. We connected into two systems. But how did we connect into them? We used terminal emulation Mm -hmm. because the technical people said, you can't connect into this. I said, well, is there a terminal way to get into it? Yes. We just simulated a user going in. We just had to get information about one plane that was landing and one plane that was taking off in the inventory from one system. I see. Once the service person saw that, he said, fine, I can see that it can be done. I can then see the screens that I want, and I want this. Mm -hmm. Then the technical people have to come on board, and they fight a little bit often. They say, well, you know, this doesn't work because terminal emulation, you can't get in fast enough, and if you change the screens, you're going to have technical problems, and you're going to have consistency, data consistency problems. All Once you're in that discussion, it's easy. Mm -hmm. The technical people can talk to the technical people, and they have a love fest, and they solve it. But you have to get a passionate person behind you, and that's the user. And that's where relationships are so important. Notice what I just said. I didn't talk technology at all. I found out what the user wanted, what his goals were, what was critical to his goals, and then I show him what it wants. That was what was critical. So, okay, so you've talked about how to sort of get credibility here by getting this early adopter, or do you do that um, even in the process of getting an early adopter because you went to Bob Crandall and, and heard his goals right, and then offered him a solution right. that met his goals. right. And did that give you credibility in the organization? I mean, imagine if you went to a junior vice president, you'd have less credibility. Yes. Again, you have to identify who are the people that has the ability to do things. Mm-hmm. Some organizations are hierarchical. So if you go to Samsung, Mm -hmm. you're not going to get middle-level management to do anything. The chairman dictates what to do. Mm -hmm. At Hewlett-Packard Corporation, the way the culture was there is middle-level people had ability to do things. We established a whole customer uh, executive training session and, more importantly, a customer service representative's training session with a service manager that was five levels down from the chairman. Mm-hmm. But he had authority to give, have us give one course. We got the one course, and then we bootstrapped it ourselves up to eventually the chairman got involved and would come as a guest lecturer to the classes. So do you know how that got to the chairman? Uh, yes. I helped get it to the chairman. What we did is, again, assets, we get assets. We'd take the students in the course and we had them write what they thought of the course. Mm -hmm. And then what we did is, what I did is uh, I had them write notes to the chairman and they were pleased to do it. He ended up getting five or six letters a week about how good these courses were. He then had to see it. Oh, I didn't go to the chairman first. I went to a vice president. They got these, and I invited them to come. But then I did another trick. I made it so it was very easy for them to come. Mm -hmm. How did I do that? They were down in New Jersey. 
what I did is I said, you can come in our plane. Well, at that time, I just barely had two nickels to rub together. I didn't have my own plane. Mm-hmm. But I could rent a plane. Mm-hmm. So I rented a plane for $5,000, went down and picked them up in our rented plane, and flew them up in our rental plane, had them land, made it so their barrier to entry was almost zero for Removing them to come. Removed obstacles. Removed obstacles. So they arrived. They loved the program once they arrived. And the students, it was that substance. The students were ecstatic about it. And then I had them write to the chairman, as well as the students. Then the chairman came. He had to see what was going on. I see. And it was rather interesting. The chairman of AT&T at that time, one out of 200 people reported the chairman. His name was Charles Brown. He got off the train, and I'm just playing, and I'm just a young assistant professor at that time. And I wanted to give him a present. And I went up, and I gave him a MIT golf ball. <laughs> and this guy is running a, the largest corporation in America at that time. He looks down at the golf ball. He says, thank you. And then I brought him into my car to drive him from the airport uh-huh. off his corporate jet to my car. He gets in the car. I've got a Dodge Dart that's five years old, and my dog had eaten the dashboard away that I left him in there. He gets in the car, looks at the dashboard, and he says, is this something you should tell me? (laughs) And then he said, it's really hot in here. Do you have any air conditioning? Without thinking, I immediately reached my arm across in front of him and opened up the vent Uh on the other side. He said, oh, this is going to be an interesting day. Oh, my gosh. But he liked the sincerity of it. Mm Mm-hmm. I didn't have to falsify anything, didn't have to put on anything, because the substance of the program and the courses was great. And I want to always say to you, it's great to start off with these goals and critical suspects in the relationship, but it won't work unless you have substance behind you. Okay, that's great. Uh, it's an important point to highlight that you can't, there has to be something there. That's right. You cannot bluff it. You bluff it once and it's gone. You just can't do it. It's sort of sort of like you go to a concert and everything's perfect, but there's one bad note in that concert. What you remember is the bad note. Interesting. You have to have substance at the final end. And and I and you have to have belief in that substance. And my substance was always a group of young people that could back up anything that I said. Mm-hmm. So now you've talked about the idea of getting somebody to give you credibility you know, sort of what are their goals and going organizationally to the right people. And I know you like to go after the chief executives, not to go to the department heads or the, I mean, if you're doing a technology play, don't go to the technical people. Bad. You can't go to people you're going to threaten. Right. That's, that's the lesson. They they have to be made into heroes. Now I should point out, Sometimes technical people can be heroes. I'll give you a concrete example. Unilever had a CIO named Bob Johnson. Unilever is a $60 billion company. They own soaps and Tide mm-hmm. and all of those, those uh, products. They are about 500 companies that they own. Bob Johnson was the CIO. So he's a technical person. However, he wasn't on the board. He was viewed in a way of just doing a supportive role of doing the payroll and they have to pay him. It was a, it was a part of the division that the CEOs didn't like at all. It had to do with it. So what I did is I had him on board and I asked him what his goals were. He said, somehow or other, I would like to have technology pay a strategic role in this company. I said, hmm, why don't we run a seminar for your senior management and we'll show them, demonstrate together 
how technology could help them mm -hmm. control inventories better, get visibility to their customers, get visibility to their customers' customers, how technology could help. He said yes. Once he said yes, I had a chap that I could make into a hero. Mm -hmm. Well, we ran one seminar for 10 executives. He then organized, because that went well, every president of Unilever came to our programs at Cambridge Technology Group in MIT. That's 500 presidents came, wow. and including the chairman. The conclusion was they put him, in the first time ever in the company, on the board of Unilever. Wow. A CIO went on the board of Unilever. So we made him a hero. But it took him to say, I want to back this. I'm not threatened by this new technology. At that time, we we're talking about Unix and joining Unix and systems integration in the internet and such. I'm not threatened by this. I'm not threatened that my mainframe is no going to be the, the king mm -hmm. operation here. And I know mainframes, so I'm going to have to learn this new Java and Unix and uh, the internet and, and Joomla and all these other things mm -hmm. I've got to learn. No. He said, I want, my goal is to show the corporation that it, technology could be made a strategic weapon. Once mm -hmm. he said that, boom. Then he became a passionate. That's another thing I want to say. There are skeptics in there are crabs, as I say, or cynics. He was a skeptic. Mm -hmm. But once a skeptic is converted to a believer, you cannot undo him. He becomes a maniac mm -hmm. for you. Passionate. Passionate. So, well, let's let's delve into that a little bit. Um, and what is a skeptic and what is a crab? We've talked about it. I've talked to you about this so much. I, I, I don't know if we've covered it in the, in the podcast, but it's worth repeating. Well, it also has, ties into relationships mm -hmm. because you can try to establish a relationship with somebody that's, quote, a crab. It's never going to work. Mm -hmm. Let me tell you the difference. A skeptic will say, "Is this? could this be done? Can this be done? I don't really believe it. Show. And then once you show him how it can be done, either financially or physically, you show him somehow, he then becomes a believer. A cynic is like a crab. It only moves sideways or backwards. Hmm. It doesn't move forward. So he won't, he'll tell you all the reasons why it won't work, but he won't give you another alternative. If he doesn't give you an alternative, then he's a crab. Now, I use the crab because of a crab story. My son and I used to go out take our little rowboat out in the Manchester Harbor, and we'd catch crabs. I'd put them in a little basket in the back of the boat, and the crabs, now two inches from getting freedom, all they had to do was crawl out of the basket and go over the side. Mm -hmm. However, you'd watch one crab crawl up. Just before it went over the side, the other crabs would reach up and pull them down. Mm -hmm. Crabs won't let other people achieve greatness. So the danger of the crab is not that you've got a guy that's a cynic, the problem is he will infect other people. I see. The problem is, is he holds back your whole organization. So don't even try and sell to the crab. If you sell to a person that is skeptical, skeptical, yeah, and you convert him, he'll stay converted. Mm -hmm. A cynic won't stay converted. But the more important thing is he will drag down the rest of the organization and probably drag down you. Mm. So you have to isolate those types of people. And that's the tricky part. You know, what you do with real crabs, you'd boil them. But that <laughs> seems to be illegal in <laughs> today's <would> <laughs> world. So you have to isolate them. All right. Now, you've also talked about the concept of co-kings. Yes. How does that... What's a co-king? I have to take cases of this. 
what will happen is you as an entrepreneur will get hit. And I'll go back to Bob Johnson. I'll give two cases. What happened is I had started another company called uh, OEC. One of my previous endeavors I had a non-compete with. The president of that company brought a suit that said I was competing in this other company. Mm -hmm. But I wasn't. The other one company was a systems integration company. This was a tools company. We went to the judge and I could see it wasn't going well because he had lots of lawyers and, and we just weren't doing well. I called Bob Johnson, who had a contract at Unilever with both the other company and with this new company. New company for tools, the other one for systems integration. I said, what can you do? He wrote an, a fax immediately that went to the judge as a court that said, these people aren't, I'm CIO of Unilever. I've got a contract with both of these people. They're not competing. One is selling tools and I'm buying tools from the other one selling systems integration services. Hmm. Thank you. Boom. The judge looked at that and said to the other person, you might want to reconsider this suit. Wow. But that re it was that relationship that got him to write that letter. Mm -hmm. Now, co-kings, <clears throat> give one example. I started a company, uh, another company, that was building, uh, doing migrations. It was called iCubed. It turns out there's an organization called the Gartner Group, very prestigious, very good organization. However, they had a young fellow there that sent out a flash to every single CIO in the world saying the technology Donovan's advocating is premature, it's not secure, it's not ready, and don't be fooled by Donovan's charisma. Mm -hmm. I didn't know that I had that, but that's what they said. My partner, Sunda, came in and he said, we're done. We're about to release our products. We're releasing our services, taking things off of a mainframe, putting them down to client server. We have all these tools to do that. And he's saying our technology is no good. And it went to all of our customers. That's who we were selling mm -hmm. the service to. What do you do? Well, if I called up Gartner Group, I had little influence and they would not retract that. So you need a co-king, somebody that's on your level that can turn around and help you. I called up the president of Hewlett Packard whose best interest was for our, again, what does he care about most mm -hmm. himself, this migration from mainframes to client-server. Yes, we got software revenues, but he got the hardware right. of the client-server. So he vested interest in making this go. So I called him and said, I've got this problem with Gartner. He's a major subscriber of Gartner. He said, we can't get them to retract the article, but what we can do is get them to write a counter article. Mm -hmm. So you got one out there that says, this technology is no good. You got another one out there that says it's good. Mm -hmm. He called them up immediately. Next day, it was in their best interest to do that. So get circulation up, controversy is mm -hmm. good. Right. Circulation went up. They, counter, they published a counter article that said, this technology is good. Our sales soared because mm -hmm. now everybody all of a sudden knew us. Right. What was it? You needed a co-king. You needed somebody who could defend you when you get attacked. Right. In whether that's another corporation or that's another person, mm -hmm. it's a person that is equal in stature to you, but is in an independent 
area that can be your co-king. Okay. So. And again, relationships are important. The only reason why I could call this man is because I had relationships with mm-hmm. him. You have to have relationships with them. Relationships are important. Now, one of the things you sort of mentioned there was this, you know, you had Gartner say these negative things about Unix and you. Yes. You know, don't don't listen to his charisma. And the best, I'll say, the best you could get was a positive article about Unix. Right. Some people would say, that's not enough. I deserve more. I demand more. I want a retraction. Now, I've seen you over the years I've known you that there's a very real reality to you of not settling, but compromising, I guess, being willing to compromise. Can you talk about that a little bit? Because some people will say, I'm owed that. That's what I want. Another rule that I have is perfect is the enemy of good. Right. You said that earlier. You really want to settle for good. And you want to find out what people want. It turns out there's most of these times there's a second round. Gotten is not going to go away. Mm -hmm. So what you have to do is give them a way that they can retreat gracefully. Mm -hmm. You really have to think about what they need and they want. The idea of having two articles out there that is controversial, that's good for Gardner. Mm -hmm. The idea of having them retract something, saying they're wrong, is bad for them. Mm -hmm. And they do that once. But but they said it. They lied. That was wrong. They shouldn't have said that. you, You have to turn around and say, you, Donovan, are wrong in pushing them into that corner. Okay. It's okay if they had a different opinion. It's okay for you to correct it. It's not okay for you to push a humiliation. Mm-hmm. Well, what about, you know, we've talked a little bit about moral absolutes. You know, people are absolutely, you know, that they, they see in black and white. You, the world is not black and white. Uh, there, there is a story that I should tell you which side of the world you want to live in. They talk... And this is a story that the Prime Minister of India gave me, and actually John was with me. And he was saying, it's an Indian legend, there's this old man that this young man comes to and says, what is man really made out of? And the old man says, every man has two dogs in him. One is hateful and revengeful, and the other one is loving and forgiving. And the young man says, well, what happens? He said, they're always fighting. The young man says, well, who wins? The hateful, revengeful one or the loving and forgiving one? And he said, it depends on which one you feed. Mm-hmm. So what you have to be in negotiations, you have to really make sure you don't feed the bad dog. Mm. If you feed the good dog, people love positive people. People love optimism. Mm-hmm. People love Ronald Reagan. People run like people that were optimistic. Mm-hmm. And one of the things of a great leader is his optimism, making people reach higher. If you spend too much time with the bad dog, then what you're doing is you're spending too much time on the negative side. I see. People don't like to follow people like that. But I have seen where you will be willing to take less than, quote, your owed or would be reasonable to move it forward. To move it forward, you have to keep going. And that's another thing an entrepreneur has to realize. Momentum is key. Mm-hmm. Once you lose momentum, you're in trouble. So 
momentum. So you can scroll down to correct that one thing, or you can keep moving forward in momentum, momentum, momentum. Hmm. You've got to get the next customer. You've got to go on to the next idea. You've got to keep moving, keep moving. But momentum, if a battle slows you down, you've lost the momentum. And all you have to do is look at organizations like Arizona Tea. Mm-hmm. The two founders got into a fight. They fought for seven years. The whole market went away during that time. Hmm. And then they settled it seven years later. It would have been so much better if one of them, or both of them, had settled for far less than what they would have had, but they would have ended up having a company because they would have kept the momentum. Another concrete example is Samsung. Financial crisis in the 1990s of all of Asia. Mm-hmm. What did Chairman Lee do? He recognized he had to move into new areas. He had to move. What he did is he sold two-thirds of his stock. So he didn't get bogged down with correcting things and then went on. Hmm. I'm saying if Arizona T, those two chaps, had turned around and moved on, settled it quickly, both not happy, but they would have ended up with a company that was tremendous. And they had on the table office to buy them from Procter & Gamble and others. Seven years later, these other organizations had copied their, right. their tees and were in that market. They've lost it. Mm-hmm. They didn't move on. They didn't settle for something. Well, Settle, 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 and then move on, move on. So it's really really being opportunistic. Being opportunistic. And to, to the point of not saying, no, but I, I'm owed something. That's right. So it's opportunity trumps your expectations beautiful that's a great great way to say it this is the second time you've said something very insightful today that's cool well today I thought it was forever (laughs) it's one of the few (laughs) (laughs) but you're right opportunity is going to always trunk and that comes in in a crisis you want to look at the opportunity and that's got to trump everything else Mm. so you've been listening to the keep moving podcast uh, today with John Donovan and I encourage you to visit John's website at professordonovan.com. He is releasing a new book momentarily called The Entrepreneur, which highlights his long career in entrepreneurism and has tremendous value to both entrepreneurs starting from scratch outside of an organization, brand new, or if you're in an organization, how to be an entrepreneur there. So go to uh, professordonovan.com slash the entrepreneur and you can get a preview there. Thanks for listening to Keep Moving. You can find us on Twitter at ProfDonovanMIT and on Facebook at Facebook.com slash ProfDonovanMIT. For a downloadable copy of The Donovan Model, visit ProfessorDonovan.com slash model. Be sure to join us again for our next episode.